and welcome to Vertiguys. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Preacher, and today, Hellblazer. That's right. We are reading Hellblazer issues 29 through 31, which, though not the end of the Family Man trade paperback collection is the end of the family man story arc pretty much that's right 29 through 30 kind of wrap things up and 31 is sort of an epilogue to the family man right so basically what has come before in the story while impersonating a friend john accidentally did a deal with an old man for some information that the old man wanted which turned out to be the location of a happy family because he's a serial killer called the family man who kills happy families why just to be a dick <laughs> Put a pin in that. So John decided he had to do something about it because he had a responsibility for this guy and he set a lure out for the family man by arranging for somebody else to be arrested for his crimes and arranging for himself to be in the background of the photograph when the guy was taken away by the police. Right. On the cover of the newspaper, basically. Yeah, but before he knew it, the family man was all over him like a cheap suit and he knew that the confrontation was coming faster than he was ready for it, and so he fucked up a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, John is kind of struggling with the idea that the way he's going to have to deal with the family man is to kill him, and he practiced killing a guy by stabbing the fuck out of a loaf of bread. Yeah, so, and I want to pick up from that. We can go back in just a second and talk about the cover of this issue, but I want to pick up straight from that idea because... This comic picks up from that idea, and on page one, we get a really cool sequence of John imagining that he's in a fight with the family man using the bread knife, and he ends up cutting off the family man's arm, which makes him resemble John's own father, and his face transforms into that of John's own father, and John wakes up stricken with guilt. Yeah, that is the other big thing that happened previously in the story arc, is that the family man, while looking for John, uh, questioned and then killed his father, Thomas Constantine. Right. So, sad day for the main character and the Constantine family there. Yeah, even though we will learn John and his father do not get along at all. Right, they were quite estranged. Now, well, actually, we had learned that because his father talked about it before he died. Yeah, said some mean things. Right. Now, I want to point out on this page, in the second panel, the family man has this big, wide-toothed grin that is just kind of an amazing facial expression, like, Hi, I'm evil. Yeah, he looks with his fedora and his... He doesn't have a fucked-up face, but he definitely is drawn as really wrinkly in a way that's kind of sinister. And I was going to say he kind of resembles, you know, Fred Krueger. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, actually. But let's go back a little bit. This is Hellblazer number 29, Sick at Heart, written by Jamie Delano, with art by Ron Tyner and Kevin Walker, and colors by Tom Zuiko. Jamie Delano and Tom Zuiko are going to be there throughout the three issues that we're covering today. The art team is going to change a little bit. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think it's exactly the same Didn't for you? any two issues out of this three. We get Ron Tyner and Kevin Walker in the first issue, Ron Tyner with Mark Buckingham in the second issue, and then Sean Phillips in the third issue. 
So the cover to Hellblazer number 29 is by Kent Williams. We have a revolver, and below that, sort of a face looking up from behind a series of sort of doll-like or Michael Myers masks, one of which has scrawled on it a rudimentary drawing of a man fighting a devil. Yeah, the devil is big and imposing, and the man is smaller and scared by comparison, and the devil is holding a trident. Yeah, I don't know if the face here is Constantine or the family man, but they're both sort of adopting different guises and stories as they close in on one another. Yeah, and I, I like the, the central focus of the revolver in the cover image because, you know, the gun is such an object of major significance in this issue, as we're going to get to. Yeah. Okay, so as we already discussed, the first page of this issue has that great dream sequence of the family man and John trying to fight him with the bread knife. So, page two. Well, I guess we kind of covered page two as well. John wakes up guilt-stricken. He doesn't know about his father at this point, right? No, that's important to note. He has a dream where he's in this knife fight and ends up hurting or killing his father, either killing him or being responsible for the loss of his arm. But he doesn't actually know anything has happened to his father yet. Right, so he springs awake, shouting, Dad, and then he hears a slam as someone enters the bookie's office downstairs. He's staying above this bookie where his friend Chaz works. So John screws up his courage and makes his way downstairs, sees the figure that he thinks is the family man. John jumps with the bread knife in hand, and the intruder kicks his ass. Yeah, just beats the ever-loving snot out of him, and it turns out to be Chaz. No, Chaz, don't! It's me! Anyway, Chaz is pissed off. He's apparently coming to work early because his wife's been giving him hell, which John guesses correctly is about him and the fact that he's being allowed to stay at Chaz's place of employment, and he decides to leave the bookies. It's for the best, mate. There's a shitstorm brewing, and I don't want you to be hurt. You're doing it again, aren't you, John? I can tell by your stupid face. What's that, mate? You know what? Pissing about with demons and stuff. Not this time, Chaz. I only wish I was. Demons I can handle. This trouble's strictly human. And this is when he makes the somewhat fateful decision to ask Chaz to fix him with a gun. Right, well, specifically, Chaz decides that John needs some help since he's terrible in a fight. <laughs> right. Yeah, so John asks for a gun. They argue about this for a page. Chaz doesn't really approve of using a gun. You're crazy. Anyway, what sort? How do I know what sort? A gun for shooting people. But John hands over his winnings. He's found another bookie in town who will take his bets. He's unnaturally lucky, so bookies don't like him. Yeah, this is going to come back later. He's pissed off every bookmaker in town. Yeah, so John hands over his winnings and Chaz makes a call. So do you remember when I said that we would come back to the idea that John pissed off every bookmaker in town? I do. It was recently. Well, we are coming back to it right now. Yeah, John says William Hills took his bet, and we cut from that to the family man entering William Hills. They are only too happy to help family man on the trail of John Constantine, saying, if you find him, break an arm for me. They don't know where he lives, but they do know that he's been seen at Eddie Morgan's place, which is where he's been staying. And the family man, Samuel Morris, walks into Morgan's place and asks Chaz, who's on duty if he knows John, Points to the newspaper photo of him. Never saw him before in me life. 
And we have this great first-person panel of the family man reaching up behind Chaz and grabbing him by both ears. Liar! Meanwhile, John meets a black market guy in a public park. They go into the public lavatory and do a quick deal for the gun. Yeah, there's an upcharge for bullets. John makes the contact load the gun because he doesn't really know how. Amateurs. There you go. See you around. Don't shoot your foot off. John feels the gun in his hand, which in a great bit of Delano prose he describes as murder's cold handshake. Yeah, I wrote that down too. That's good. And he fires a practice round into a totally innocent bathroom mirror. Right. Kind of getting used to the feel of it and the idea that he's going to have to be using it. And then we get a misquote from a John Cale song here. John Cale, of course, was a member of the Velvet Underground, which we talked about in our last episode. Yeah, Velvet Underground, a favorite of Neil Gaiman and perhaps of Jamie Delano as well. Yeah, so Jamie Delano misquotes the John Cale solo song Gun here, and he attributes it as John Cale Fear, which was the name of the album that the song was on, but okay. not the name of the song. And the quote is also inaccurate? The quote is also not in that song. Well, the line but, here, when you begin to think like a gun, the days of your life are already gone. Yeah. And that's not how that song goes. <laughs> <laughs> you can't point to the error. It's more systemic it's not, than that. It's the days of something else are already gone. It's okay. not the days of your life. Okay. Well, we cut to Morris hanging out in a barber shop, which has a view of Eddie Morgan's front door. John stops into the bookies. Chaz is furious, having taken a beating. John should have warned him that the family man was an old guy who's taken completely off guard by John's foe being an old guy who could kick Chaz's ass. I also like this part with a guy in the barber shop, and he's, like, complaining about how in the old days crime was more honest or, like, less vicious. He says the Cray Twins was good old-fashioned killers, but a woman and a little baby? savages these days aren't safe in your own home are you mate and they're sitting there like with the family man is like sitting there listening to them talk in the barbershop right right while he waits for his turn oh yeah yeah and as he looks out the window he is subtitled by the sign on the business below the barbershop which says family butcher oh i didn't even notice that that's darkly funny so Chaz doesn't want to cross his wife any further he decides to back out of this endeavor but he gives John a message from the family man, a postcard reading, Greetings from Liverpool. Now that, we know, is where John grew up and where his father lived. Yeah, it's signed FMXXX and marked with two splotches of blood. In a panic, John calls his sister Cheryl. We only see one side of the conversation as his fears are confirmed. He promises to be in touch soon, hangs up, and collapses against the counter and cries. Yeah, terrific page of facial expressions here by Ron Tyner. John's incipient panic as he calls Cheryl for confirmation and his face going dark as he finds out. Now, though, he decides he's committed. He can't let the family man go after his sister Cheryl and her daughter Gemma, so he's got to take him out. Now, that's familiar. Gemma is the same niece of Constantine's that he had to rescue from the Damnation Army in the first story arc, right? Yeah, Hellblazer number four, waiting for the man. Okay. Now Chaz knows it's not really John's forte, but he urges him to come up with a plan. 
And he comes up with a pretty good one pretty fast, actually. Is your cousin Norma still on the game? I think I need a woman. This is part of the plan. It's not just John being John. Right. I also like that John says he might be right outside, and Chaz just grabs a baseball bat and looks out the door. <laughs> I guess he does, yeah. It's probably not a baseball bat. It's a club of some kind. Yeah. So sometime later, it's after dark, Morris is hanging out in the butcher shop, watching Morgan's front door. John and Chaz play out a scene here where Chaz is throwing John out because he's too unstable. Come on, Chaz. It's 11 o'clock at night. Just let me stay till morning. It's too risky, John. You're not keeping it together. But you said you'd help. Change me mind. You're on your own, pal. Bastard. Right from the get-go, even without seeing how this plan is going to play out or really having 100% confirmation that John has one, you can kind of tell that this is staged. Right, yeah. So we get an awesome page here of a family man sort of shadowing John from the bookies to either an apartment or a little motel. It's not made entirely clear where he's going to meet with Norma, but it's very, like, very spy craft, you know? Yeah, I have written slow motion chase scene. And this is super atmospheric. Every panel contains one of them and the shadow of the other. Yeah, I definitely want to give props. The way that this issue is credited, we don't really know who did the pencils versus who did the inks. It just says that the art was by Ron Tyner and Kevin Walker. From my research, I believe it was pencils by Tyner, inks by Walker. Okay, that was my presumption just on seeing it credited that way. And these inks are really good. This is also a good time to point out that this issue and the next issue use a lot of nine-panel breakdowns. Yes, that's right. The layouts are really nice as well. I'm not sure if it was scripted that way or if that was just the way that the artists chose to do it. But yeah, great, great layouts, great inks, really good colors as well by Tom Zawiko. Just really fantastic art going into this, this slow-motion chase sequence, as you said. John turns up at Norma's. And from the conversation, we find out what the game means. Yeah, it's clear that she's a working girl. Chaz said you could do with some company. I'll have to charge you, though. Can't afford charity at my time of life. 100 quid the night, all right? Fine, fine. And as she makes them a couple of drinks, they sort of talk about his dad a little bit. Yeah, he's kind of distracted, though, watching out the window. Right, he has... A whole trap set here in mind. He clearly knows he's been followed. John tells Norma that he's taking the 7 a.m. train to Liverpool, presumably for his father's funeral, and he makes a show of making sure that her clock is correct and setting it for six. Right. Norma shrugs out of her robe and helps John undress. He says he's not interested in the full business, just someone to literally sleep with. You can keep the money. Don't worry, it's nice to have the night off. You just snuggle up cozy and have a nap. The family man smiles, knowing that his prey is right where he wants him. And uh, that's about when he gets caught being a peeping Tom. Yeah, Morris has a run-in at this point with some judgmental people. I can't tell if this is meant to be another working girl and a pimp or just some rude people in really nice coats. <laughs> but yeah, they call him a peeping Tom and a dirty old man. And the guy says, go steady, Dad. You'll have a seizure. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. And then, and then Wolverine attacks him. I'm sorry? Well, look at the last panel. (laughs) (laughs) 
I see. I did not notice that. As some person is watching Morris stalk into the night, this person throws their cigarette to the ground and steps on it, making the sound snicked. Yeah, there's a snicked sound effect of him putting out the cigarette. But yeah, so we can only assume that the family man has been killed by Logan and that for the rest of this story arc, it is in fact old man Logan that John Constantine is facing off against. I don't think that's accurate. It's probably the chameleon. I mean, he could take on any guys. This is true. Yeah. As old man Logan found out. He has a vest with all kinds of pockets. What are you talking about? (laughs) I'm sorry, that was too obscure. You sent me this comic panel of the chameleon. Oh, right! (laughs) This is from, like, his first appearance, and he's bragging that he has a vest with a bunch of different pockets, each with a mask in it. Right. His actual superpower is having more than one pocket. (laughs) Right, right. He's like, thanks to my special vest that has, like, eight pockets. (laughs) Like, really? That's your power? Oh, man, I remember that comic now. That was some wacky shit. Did you hear that there's a casting rumor that Jake Gyllenhaal might appear in the next Spider-Man movie as Chameleon? Okay, I think I heard that. I didn't understand. It seemed like people were really shocked by it, and I didn't understand why. I don't know. I guess because there have been, like, continuous, for more than a decade now, rumors of Jake Gyllenhaal taking the role of Spider-Man. I guess mainly because he has a passing resemblance to Tobey Maguire. Right. Or he did when they were both younger. Yeah, and he also played Nightcrawler, so... Oh, have you ever seen that movie? No, oh, it's on my Netflix list. <laughs> <laughs> so we can see that John has not slept. He's still awake with a gun in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Clearly intending to kill some people as he's smoking in bed. Right, yeah. Meanwhile, Morris walks to a hotel where he wakes up the clerk. He asks for a street plan and for a wake-up call at 5 a.m. For those of you keeping score at home, train at 7, John wakes up at 6, Family man wakes up at five. You gotta wake up pretty early in the morning to outsmart John Cunt. That's not true. I can't even even get through it. You've gotta wake up sometime before noon (laughs) if you wanna outsmart John Constantine. Not pretty early in the morning, just in the morning will do. (laughs) Right, yeah. Norma's phone wakes up Constantine in a panic, and there's a panel of him looking pretty silly sprawled over the bed trying to get to the phone in shirt and no pants. What, on Tighten Up the Defense, they refer to as Donald Duck in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except that he's wearing, like, a really tiny tank top. Anyway. You really see his bum there. Yeah. There's some, there's some bum. Anyway, it's Chaz. He's got the info of the Family Man's Hotel, and when he's waking up, John says he can take it from here, and he goes back to bed. Not, I should say, back to sleep. Norma, you awake? Uh, I think I've changed my mind. I thought it was too good to be true. Come on, then. Okay, so that brings us to Hellblazer number 30, Fatality. Jamie Delano, Ron Tyner, and Mark Buckingham on art, Tom Zawiko on colors, as mentioned before. And do you want to talk about the cover? Yeah, this is by Kent Williams again. John has a gun in his hand and his back turned on what seems to be the sprawled body of the family man lying next to a chalk drawing of a happy family. Yes, and that saves us the trouble of reading the issue. (laughs) It's all just right there on the cover. I want to also point out that the title, Hellblazer, appears on this particular cover to have been written in Sidewalk Chalk by a child. That's right. 
And John just looks really kind of squat and menacing. He's got his collar popped. He looks really villainous on this cover. Yeah, there's smoke coming off of him, either from the pistol or because he's smoking a cigarette with his back turned to us. So in his hotel room, Samuel Morris gets his 5 a.m. wake-up call, but he's already finishing up 100 push-ups. It's boring, but it's part of my life. Speaking of push-ups, John is having sex with Norma. Oh, why did you have to transition to it that way? I thought that was deliberate. Oh, you think that's what the comic is doing? Yeah. Just like sort of a sort of a night Olympics kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe. Okay, so he asks if, I, I mean, after they finish, he asks Norma if there's a back door, and she says only the Kazi window, which is slang for the bathroom window. Oh, okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Oh, and we get a little bit of John being a cheapskate here. Uh, 50, wasn't it? He asks. <laughs> Knowing full damn well that it was a hundred. It was a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Quid. And he also tells her it'll all be over in an hour. Don't answer the door until then. Watching out for her a little bit. I think it'll all be over in an hour really sums up. Uh, (laughs) 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 Why do you have to transition to it that way? Oh, their interaction. Sorry. You know what? You're right. Morris has an interaction here with a cabbie. I can't oh, tell I if he's stiffing this. the cabbie or overpaying him. Oh, oh no. I think he's stiffing him a little bit. Bloody murder. That's what you pensioners are. First job of the day and you stick me with a 20. We need a hard winter to thin you old bastards out a bit. Grabbing him by the throat, Morris says, Do you have a family? Yerk! Yes! Then keep the money. Spend it on your children. Um, okay, well, he can't keep the money if you didn't even pay him enough for the fare, guy. Right. Unless he owns the cab himself. Maybe, maybe. So, we see the title here. The title is sort of embedded in the train tracks as John standing on the railway overpass. Is it called a trestle? Yeah, I is think it, it is a trestle. Is that the word for it? In any case, whatever it's called, he's standing on it. And he's watching the family man watching what he thinks is him because the family man is standing in the bushes outside of the hotel slash apartment where john was just with norma yeah another lovely layout as we can see family man and what he's watching and john watching him from above yeah and john has the family man right in his sights here but much like hamlet he hesitates no room for mercy now don't even try to balance the scales of justice do what you have to. Call yourself an agent of comic law if you have to. But just kill him. But then he does not. I needed to be more personal. I need him to know that it was me, John Constantine, who chose to live with his death. So from here, John sort of loses the upper hand. We switch narrators. And it's actually Family Man narrating at this point how he's watching Constantine. The hunter has become the hunted as Constantine starts to make his way to the bus and family man now has him in his sights and follows him yeah this is pretty cool mostly every time we cross over from the left to the right of the page we also cross over between constantine's and the family man's narration as they stalk each other throughout this issue yeah and shifting perspective as well there's some famous delano prose on this page traps open he's off all babies in the end scampering to hide in the family bosom milky little things yeah, I thought that was a bit much. And, you know, I much preferred the kind of textless page that we got of the shadowing scene in the last issue. Mm-hmm. That seemed much more tense. All this kind of purple prose really makes it feel a bit like stalling. 
Okay. Which it really yeah. isn't, because this is actually a fairly fast-moving issue in terms of being eventful. But yeah, all this stuff... The Maasai mix milk and blood to drink. No, swallow that taste. Anticipate. It won't be here, that feast. Just like, just stop. You know? <laughs> So it looks to me like John deliberately walks past the apartment where the family man thought he was staying to let Morris pick up his trail. And he leads him into this junkyard. Right. And that's when the family man kind of catches on and realizes that, oh, he's not heading for the bus. He's trying to lay an ambush. Right. And he says, I wasn't born yesterday. Don't miss the bus, son. I thought he was saying this out loud to Constantine, but Constantine has not picked up on it on the next page. And that's where Morris bugs out. How quiet can an old man be? Don't look around. How far could he throw a knife? Don't look around. Ambush the bastard. Christ, what is he, some kind of bloody ninja? Wondering now when the family man will catch up with him, John gets on the tube for Victoria, where he's boarding his bus. He sort of panics here when an old man grabs him by the shoulder to tell him that he's smoking in front of a no-smoking sign. Yes, you might well look guilty. Put that out at once or I'll call a policeman. They'll kill you, you know. Little bit of foreshadowing there. Dangerous habits. Oh, cigarettes. Cigarettes will kill him. Not the police. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Right, no, no. He's not saying the police. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call oh. the police on you for smoking in public, and they'll kill you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but we discussed before the efficiency of the British justice system. <laughs> so... <laughs> So here we have another silent page as John heads into the tube station. Morris enters the men's room. John walks out of the station, and we see a bearded old guy come out of the men's room and watch John go. Yeah, it's really cool here how they're they're passing through the same spaces, but never at exactly the same time. Nice wide shots here. Good stuff. As John boards the bus, he's making friendly with some Liverpool football hooligans, chanting Li- along with them. Liverpudlians. That's right. John says, back to work tomorrow, then. I I do like how he complains that there's no jobs in Liverpool. And when John suggests maybe stay in London, then the guy says, "Uh, no way, because all Southerners are wankers. And as they take their seats, we see bearded guy quietly board the bus behind them and uh, take a seat on the back of the bus. John muses as the bus travels in the rain. I was a killer as soon as I bought the gun. I can feel it now, glowing black, a lodestone for violence. It's dragging him after me through this filthy fog like some diseased revenant. Sure as shooting it is. Yeah, this seemed like another page of kind of felt like stalling to me. It could have been a lot more a lot more tense with him like just kind of looking around, wondering, trying to catch sight of the family man and not seeing him. Instead he says, Feels like dead time, as if the votes are in and we're just waiting for the final tally. And I kind of agree. I think this page and the next one are a bit of dead time. We have the hooligans listening to I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, which is a 1918 folk song adopted as the anthem of West Ham United football. They support West Ham? I'm thinking that they're singing the fight song of the team they beat. Oh, is that a thing? Okay, because I would assume that they support Liverpool FC. Yeah, they're literally wearing Liverpool FC shirts. Oh, so they are. Okay. Yeah, so they just came from the game and they won. So I guess they're singing the defeated team's song. That seems like a weird thing to do, but all right. John thinks, with choirs of angels to hymn me to my rest. That is Hamlet, right? Yeah. And Morris, I think it's supposed to be a surprise that he's on the bus, but this narration could only be the family man, right? 
A shroud stained by sleeping wounds, blood and fabric, memory's lingering flavor. A boy, a punch, a nosebleed, a coat collar sucked for weeks until the corner was a flaccid furry teat. And if you lick the condensation from the window of a bus, you can taste humanity. Oh. I don't know, yeah, I didn't get a lot out of all that. Like I already said, that whole page felt like stalling to me. There was a reference a couple of issues ago to him sucking on his coat collar, and he mentioned the fading taste of Constantine. Like, he got a little bit of Thomas Constantine's blood on his coat and has been tasting it ever since. Oh, okay. Just a creepy detail. Yeah, that is weird. Wasn't he wearing a white brain slicker? He put a brain slicker on specifically to do the murder. We haven't seen him wearing it since, so that's weird. Yeah. Anyways, the bus gets a flat tire. Constantine decides not to walk all the way across the bridge to the bathroom. Instead, he just hides behind a truck why suffer when relief is so close at hand and starts actually starts taking a leak on this truck <laughs> and when family man in disguise confronts him oh hello sorry is this your truck being awfully good-natured about it he's probably about to get his ass kicked like <laughs> even if it wasn't a murderer <laughs> yeah even if it's not a murderer you're peeing on a guy's ride you're breaking the vincent vega rule right this old man pulls a knife what? Oh, fuck. He's got a fucking sword. <laughs> Actually, my notes I wrote, John Constantine is confronted by a swordsman. <laughs> <laughs> he looks different. I mean, you know. yeah, yeah, right. This is just a truck owner with a fucking rapier. <laughs> so, Family Man slashes at John, gets him across the forehead. John rips the Family Man's beard off and runs away. Yeah, you want to talk about old folk songs. The... Family Man is yelling at him, run, rabbit, run, as Constantine goes. John stops and draws his gun, which the Family Man comments is not very British. No, you can't do it, can you? I'm an old man. John asks why he does what he does, and Morris says, fate decrees tragedy from birth, which is kind of a shitty answer, but okay. You can't kill me. You're a virgin. I remind you of your... Yes, I can, and he fires. Bad choice of words, bro. You don't have what it takes to kill me. There's a panel here before John has fired where his pistol muzzle has a halo of orange light. That's kind of confusing. Oh, I see it. Yeah, all right. Do you think he's knocking it against that tree? Maybe he fired a warning shot. Maybe. Why would he warn him if he's planning to shoot him? Anyway, so as the family man is shot we get flashback to his interactions with his father when he was a little boy his father apparently put the family dog out of its misery we're superior beings and that gives us responsibility it was a kindness i couldn't stand to see it suffer could you sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind that's what it's like to be a man in the right measure you know <laughs> also this page really makes it look like a sword it's a pretty big knife Sean, that is a fucking gladius. <laughs> this, is, this is the weapon Russell Crowe used in the film. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the same one. Not dead yet, Morris taunts John about the feeling of killing, but he concludes with disappointment that John can't feel the way he does, because you don't love me enough. Yeah, it's a whole page of villain speechery. Your mileage may vary. And he jumps at John in mid-speech, seemingly using his speech to distract him so he can get a swing in. But John just shoots him again. I don't want this. Yes, you do. 
Back in the flashback, Samuel does not want his parents to go out. He doesn't want to be alone, especially since they don't have a dog anymore. He thinks if his mother loves him, she won't go, but she does. But she promises she'll be home by 12. You promise? I promise. Cross my heart and hope to die. Back in the fight, it looks like Samuel gets shot again. And that is it. No more fighting it. We go back into the flashback. Samuel watches the clock as midnight passes by, still alone. His parents actually get home about 4 a.m. Too late for relief. In his mind, they were dead and buried hours ago. Since 12 o'clock, he's mourned their loss and accepted a future without them. He can never suffer that agony again. So I felt like here, Delano is basically refusing to give the family man a comprehensible motivation, a defining tragedy. I mean, this is all there is to it, right? His parents went out one night, and when they weren't home by midnight, he just instantly decided to kill them. He's always been a monster. Yeah, is it the thing about he kills them because he already mourned their loss and couldn't, you know, stand to face it again? Or is it that he kills people, including his parents, because his father gave him that bullshit about being a superior being? We're not really sure. We uh, talked in a previous issue about, like, crushing away vulnerability. Right. And there's something to the idea here that, like, his parents hurt him and he can't he can't allow himself to love anybody, to be vulnerable to anybody again, and so he kills people. Right. But when you get to the end of the flashback and he killed his parents for basically nothing... Well, you say for basically nothing. It does seem like it was kind of an emotionally abusive household, if not physically abusive as well. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. His father definitely seems like a tough customer. Mm, okay, okay. Anyway, back in the present, Family Man's got no more fight in him. He wants John to finish him off. John can't really bring himself to do it. He actually uses his father's word here. End it now. It's a kindness. John doesn't want to execute him in cold blood, and he asks why Morris did it. Told you. You have to kill me to find out. Family Man actually has to grab the trigger of the gun and pull it himself. Ending his own life. Well, I guess it's sort of him and Constantine both do it together. How should you feel when you've just killed a man? Christ, it must mean something in the scheme of things. The traffic should stop, at least. There should be some comment, not just the silent accusation of black-eyed cows. As he makes his way out of this tunnel where they ended up fighting, and he drags the family man's body into a ditch, he narrates that he... He wants to confess to someone, to make excuses to someone. But there's no excuse for murder, ever, is there? He tries to think of the people that he saved, but they're imaginary, and this is real. He throws the family man's business card. No, I'm sorry, this is not his business card. He did have a business card that said H. Familiaris, but this is his invitation to the serial killer's convention. The serial killer's convention from the doll's house. Right. Which is a Sandman storyline, not a Hellblazer storyline. Yeah, so as he throws this card over the corpse, he thinks, Executioners are always volunteers. They do it because they want to. And as he walks off, An old German woman once told me that if you lie down in a field, cows will come and lick your feet. Seems they're terrified, but they just have to know. Feudal old world, innit? And that brings us to the end of the issue. John Constantine sitting on a log, facing away from where he left the body just sort of looking off into the distance. So it seemed to me there was a kind of 
disconnected feeling to the whole battle between John and Family Man. A sort of inconclusiveness as to John's motives and how he felt about it as he was doing it. He kind of can't decide for himself whether he's doing the right thing because somebody had to or whether he was drawn to the family man in some way tempted to learn what he was about by emulating him yeah he does sort of say that part of the reason he has to take it upon himself to do this thing is that he could see himself becoming the family man if he doesn't defeat him yeah so whether john's murder of the family man is a good thing or not delano sort of leaves up in the air and that's unusual i feel like delano has never really been shy about telling us what to think yeah that's an interesting point and you know H. Familiaris's motives are kind of similarly muddled. Mm -hmm. But that didn't bother me that much. I think except for the fact that there's issues in the middle of this story arc that are unrelated. Mm -hmm. Like, hold me. Yeah. Leaving that aside, this story has a pretty good, effective, like, rising tension. Mm -hmm. You know, he meets the family man on accident. We get this great, like, slow realization of what the consequences of that meeting were. And then there's the kind of growing tension until they're like, you know, literally they spend the last two issues on each other's heels. Yeah, I think read as five issues in sequence, they're quite pacey. They're full of tension. There's a lot of great suspense as the two of them stalk each other. I do think it's interesting that Delano sort of refused to put a period on the question of whether murder to stop a murderer is justified. Right. So, that brings us to Hellblazer number 31, Morning of the Magician, written by Jamie Delano, with art by Sean Phillips, colors once again by Tom Zwicko. And yet another Kent Williams cover. This is a pale, naked corpse standing with its head in the stars of a child's ceiling mobile. Right. That's a hell of an image. Yeah, I thought this was a great cover. Very scary. Very spooky. Morning of the Magician is a pun on the Morning of the Magicians, which was a French book on the occult written by Louis Pauvels and Jacques Berger. So we open on Liverpool, the master's family. This is John's sister Cheryl's family with her husband Tony and their daughter Gemma. Gemma's lying awake five nights now, or is it six, since someone killed her granddad with a knife. And we see a pale hand reaching for her. Yeah, and she talks about the damp disinfectant draft. Apparently the ghost has a disinfectant hospital smell on him. There's a lovely uh, wide-eyed, scared but refusing to look face here. Yeah, really solid art. I really like the colors as well. The way that this ghost is always pure white, like he's just uncolored. This is a really different art style from Tyner's work. Heavy lines, uh, kind of more animated than realistic, almost domestic comedy style in some panels. And John looks very young in a lot of these pages. That's true. There's also a lot of use of contrasting colors, especially contrasting colors for different characters. We've got orange scenes and blue scenes and yellow scenes. So we flash back to the first night after the murder. Gemma had woken to that same cold hospital smell she knew at once was death. The ghost of Thomas Constantine, pale, one-armed, and naked, appears in her room. She thinks it's a nightmare and used the tricks Uncle John had taught her to make nightmares go away. John Constantine knows tricks to make nightmares go away? (laughs) 
she he petitioned the Dream Lord directly, he, he apparently. Doesn't, he doesn't seem to be very fucking good at it. <laughs> Maybe that's how we know his nightmares are mystical nightmares, that his normal techniques for driving away nightmares don't work on them. Okay. Maybe he's just studied techniques that would work for anybody but him. I don't know. She says the ghost looks silly with no clothes on. He didn't really look silly. He looked terrible and dead and lonely. But you had to make yourself stronger than the Vision. You know who's stronger than the Vision is that Corvus Glaive. Ugh. <laughs> Sorry. Those Black Order guys have the stupidest names. I just hate those names. Have you heard me do this rant before? I think so, yeah. Fucking Obsidian Maw. It's all fucking like... It's all like high school fan fiction type shit. I'm so glad that I caused that to happen. I mean, I, I was fine with them as characters in the movie, but they have stupid names. And their character designs are kind of dumb. So the ghost wants to get into bed to get warm, kind of like Jacko, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And when Gemma realizes it's not a dream, she runs screaming from the room. It wasn't working. It wasn't working. It wasn't a dream. And then just a hard cut to her running down the stairs with this big panel-filling scream above her. Yeah, now we find out that Gemma has made up her mind that this is something she has to deal with by herself because every time she tries to tell her parents about it, they start to ask questions about Grandpa treating her wrongly during his life. And she doesn't want them to think less of him. Yeah, and Gemma says... No, it isn't like that. Not like being with the ghost girls and married to the man. Granddad doesn't want anything bad. This is just kind of heartbreaking, the way that Gemma's so casual about the trauma she's already endured as a supporting character in this book. <laughs> no, right. Mom, this isn't like being kidnapped by ghosts to be murdered by a misogynist Satan worshiper. <laughs> uh, at least she lived. It's uncommon for a Constantine supporting character. Yeah. So she tells her parents it was just a dream. She goes back to bed, and every night since, the ghost has been there. But she thinks, the funeral's tomorrow. If it doesn't go away after the funeral, John will be here. She can ask him for help. Yeah, now at the funeral itself, she sees the ghost huddled on the casket. And it seems like John hasn't shown up. Although we actually see him smoking a cigarette outside, or at least we see his foot. Yeah, a nice framing here. The church in the distance, John's foot standing on his cigarette in the foreground. Snicked. <laughs> the best there is at what he does just you know avoiding things he doesn't want to do and smoking cigarettes <laughs> yeah Gemma's desperately trying to keep it together through the funeral here she used to like him she doesn't want to remember him like this that's a nice thought that one of the agonies of meeting a loved one's ghost is having a memory of love turned into a figure of fear yeah there's also a great like what if he doesn't know he's dead she says which I thought was interesting yeah Outside, we cut to John's narration. He won't go in to the funeral. Yeah, another abrupt narrator switch here. We don't even get so much as a change in the color of the text boxes. We do get a change in the predominant color of the page, as the funeral is blue and John is outside in the orange. That's fair. John actually can't go in even if he wanted to. He says his demon blood would boil if he entered a church. Right. Yeah, at first we think, he says something about call me immature if you want, and I was all ready to do that. Yeah. But then he informs us that he actually can't go in. I um, thought it was kind of neat to transfer directly from the thoughts of a young teenager to John calling himself immature. <laughs> right. He does peek in through the funeral, and he says, it's all over bar the snuffling, which I thought was fun. 
I found that kind of immature, actually. I thought that was him being... Oh, he's definitely being callous. Yeah, and, like, not just callous, because he's not really that cynical, you know? He's he's avoiding his emotions instead of processing them. Fair like, enough. He should do the adult thing and go into the funeral, but... But again, then we find out about the, the demon blood. He does notice, as he's watching, that Gemma looks rough. He has sort of a connection with her. He gets along better with her, really, than with either of her parents. And he's in tune to the fact that she's having a hard time. So he wanders into the crematorium? Yeah. And he, he finds a guy here having the perfect meal. <laughs> Is that from that Seinfeld episode that you wrote? Uh, yeah, I kind of made up. <laughs> I had to check that that wasn't that's not a real Seinfeld episode, right? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what he's got here is a he's he's eating a sandwich and reading a penthouse. Right. <laughs> John pretends to be some rando who just wants to watch a cremation, and this guy decides he'll allow it. Yeah, well, he decides he'll allow it. You see what happens to be in his hand here in the third panel, or the last panel of that page. There's there's now money in his hand in the third panel. Oh, okay. And that seems to be what changed his tune. So, the casket slides in, and the attendant talks kind of about how, how cool, you know, corpses are. <laughs> and uh... I thought he was really talking about how cool the cremating machine is. Yeah, yeah, well, the fire hits the belly of the corpse and causes it to shrivel up so quickly that it sits up in the casket, which freaks John right the hell out. And there's a neat transition here from the guy saying the flame will hit the corpse right in the belly to Gemma outside, her stomach tied in knots. She says that uh, they've all come out of the church, but Granddad didn't, which she takes to mean that it's over. She didn't need Uncle John after all. He still should have come, though, when he said he would. Then she feels something wrong before it happens, and when the flame hits the corpse, the ghost comes screaming out of the church on fire. Yeah, and she screams as well. Somebody says, Mrs. Quick, the little girl. And the adults try to catch her before she goes wild. Yeah, I wasn't sure here whether, at this point, everybody could see the ghost. There's an old lady looking scared here, but I guess it's still just Gemma. I think, yeah, they think they're just scared of Gemma acting weird. Well, and I like John's line referring to the crematorium guy. I suppose being a ghoul is an essential qualification in a job like this. Oh well, at least the old man would have got a charge out of knowing his last act nearly made me shit myself. So yeah, the family is very distressed about how distressed Gemma obviously is. We cut to late afternoon. Gemma's lying in bed, avoiding all the mourners downstairs. But the burnt-smelling ghost has been in her room with her all afternoon. She goes downstairs in search of Uncle John. John is talking with Cheryl about things, including Cheryl's incorrect suspicions about Granddad and the fact that John still doesn't like her husband, Tony, very much. She wonders out loud whether Granddad would have hurt Gemma, and John... Look, whatever else the old man was, you'd have to agree. John pulls his arm into his coat and waves the empty sleeve around. He was pretty armless. Ho-ho! <laughs> yeah. This apparently makes Cheryl laugh. And then Gemma comes in. She asks John to go for a walk, and as they walk, she asks about ghosts. Ghosts are real, aren't they? As real as anything else, love. Have you ever seen one? Yeah, I've known one or two in me time. Can they hurt you? Not physically, John says, forgetting entirely about Jacko. But they can damage your mind if you let them get to you. They discuss why Tom Constantine would be haunting her instead of John. John suggests that maybe she's the one he feels safest with. Yeah, 
The ghost is with them, but even John can't see him. He's sitting on a park bench here, watching them walk through the park. John feels some compassion for his father now that he's gone. Bringing up me and Cheryl on his own must have been murder. Which leads him to start thinking about murder, thinking it's a disease that he caught from the family man. Where is he now? There, by that tree. You stay here. I'm going to go have words. Come on, Dad. Cut this out, eh? I'm sorry, but it's done now. It's over. You're dead and cremated, mate. You're free. You don't have to stay here anymore. Anyway, why take it out on the girl? You want to haunt someone, haunt me. Where's your sense of humor, Pop? All sons kill their fathers, don't they? It's part of growing up. Growing up. Growing up. Oh, Christ. Idiot, idiot, idiot. How could I forget? Right, John remembers something important. He's an asshole. <laughs> he tells Gemma to wait for him in a cafe while he puts things right. And it comes out that John apparently put a curse on his father as a teenager and forgot all about it. Right. In 1967, when teenage John was dabbling in demonology, Tom burned his books. John did not approve. That's what Nazis do. I'd never been so angry before. So in another book of demonology, John found a slow death curse. Now we learn that John had a slingshot, and he used to shoot birds with it, but he could never hit. Yeah, he calls it a catapult. It is not really a catapult. It's more of a trebuchet. No, it's a slingshot. Yeah, I just that's interesting. If the British call slingshots catapults. Day was different. A hard fury steadied my aim. Next door's cat died without a sound. I felt sick with excitement. So now we know that he has one of the token characteristics of serial killer. Right. John used to torture animals. Yeah, he killed an animal as a youngster. He put one of Tom's ties on the cat for sympathetic magic and buried the cat. It occurred to me that he's making the cat look like Tom, but he didn't cut off one of the paws. Probably would feel better if I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good job there, man. <laughs> so he casts this curse on his father using this cat's corpse, and then he goes upstairs and watches Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, he does say that. So as soon as he initiates the curse, Tom starts getting weaker and weaker. John sort of gains the upper hand in the relationship. Eventually, he feels bad and he doesn't know what else to do. So he steals some formaldehyde from his high school and uses it to slow the cat's decay, which seems to halt his father's degrading condition as well. Right. He doesn't have any way to reverse the spell, but he figures if he can stop the cat's decomposition, then his father will stop declining as well. Yeah, and it seems to work, but Tom obviously never, he never gets any better. He just stops getting worse. And for the rest of his life, he's kind of frail and helpless. Damn it, John! <laughs> yeah. Just, you are the worst! <laughs> this was a really shit thing to do! It's really fucking dickish. And and especially to do it and then, like, forget about it. But it I mean, does he's... sort of express that, he, that, at least at first, he didn't know it would work. Right, he wasn't fully into magic at that time. And, you know, it's fairly normal in a relationship between a teenage boy and his father for there to be a lot of a lot of anger and tension. So he just sort of forgot about it. And he uh, buried the cat in his mother's grave so that it wouldn't be found for a long time. So John is digging this up now, digging up this buried, preserved cat. And as he does, he confesses, Look, if it means anything at all now, I do care. I do respect your life. It was just so hard and miserable. It scared the shit out of me. And John's confession here that he resented his father because of life 
following in his footsteps, a life of toil terrified him, does fit with what we know of Constantine. Sure. He's not necessarily a hard worker, kind of a schemer, a find-an-easy-way-around kind of guy. Didn't his father call him a two-bit crook? Yeah. Gemma gets bored. I guess the cafe closes, and she gets bored of trying to wait outside the cold cafe, so she comes back. John lights the cat's corpse on fire to free the ghost, and the two of them watch as it burns. Come and get warm, kid. You can keep me company, and we'll say goodbye to Granddad together. And that is the end of The Family Man. Yeah, that was a fairly good issue, a fairly good epilogue. Well, what do you think as a ghost story of their big reveal here that John cursed his father as a teenager? It's a dick move, but it fits with Constantine. And it especially fits with, like, hot-headed young Constantine who doesn't really understand that, like, magic is real, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it sort of establishes this trait that we'll see in him later in Newcastle that he's got a double-edged fascination with magic. He knows it's dangerous, but that's kind of why he's still tempted to use it. Yeah, I think that this is a, a pretty strong issue, a pretty good spooky ghost story. I think everyone's emotions and motivations make sense and are gotten across very well. Mm-hmm. What do you think about revealing John's father and, and their bad relationship right at the moment, basically, that they killed off John's father? Oh, that's just sort of this book, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. You don't last long as a supporting character. You don't last long as a supporting character, and John often doesn't have time to consider what people meant to him until they're gone. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. But yeah, neat little one-issue epilogue, and it's sort of nice to see John in the bosom of family as much as he ever gets, getting getting the handle on normalcy a little bit after the violence with the family man. Right. It's sort of rare to see him actually recuperate after an adventure. Yeah, I think this is a good, like I said, a good epilogue, a good kind of breather before we get into whatever's next. Although, you know, we'll have to see how long it takes to actually get into whatever's next. Yeah. I think the problem with the Nurgle story arc was that there was too much buildup and then, and then too much slow wind down from it. You know, it just took too long to kind of get to the next thing. Yeah, and seeing as this whole trade is called the Family Man, and the story arc is over, but we're not at the end of the trade yet, maybe that's what we'll see here as well. Now it's time for a segment I like to call "Hey Sean, Read This," where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean is going to be reading the unwritten Book One Deluxe Edition by Mike Carey and Peter Gross. This was published by Vertigo in 2016 and it includes the first 12 issues of the unwritten this is gonna take me a minute i'll just turn off the mic for a minute right now do you think they believe the mic is off probably did (laughs) all right i have in fact uh, i have one that's finished already (laughs) oh now we have a finished one right here okay so tell me what you thought so i read the first 12 issues of the unwritten But you thought that it was 13. God God damn it. (laughs) Nobody had to know that. Okay. Well, you're the one who edits the show. (laughs) So, uh, this is a series about a guy named Tom Taylor. Now, his father, Wilson Taylor? Yes. Has written a very successful series of fantasy novels about a teen wizard by the name of Harry Potter. 
<laughs> no, his name was Tommy Taylor, which is important because this kid has the same name. Right. And so he's sort of, he's known to be like the inspiration for his dad's book. And his dad has disappeared mysteriously. Mysterious circumstances. We lose more dads that way. You guys are missing so much because you can't see the hand gestures. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, and he's like, magic. And magic has like its own special hand gesture. And then he's like, disappeared. And that has a very like creative hand gesture as well. <laughs> So, he's this, like, celebrity because everybody views him as the embodiment of this really popular children's book character. Right. So, that he is confronted when he's doing a con by this woman who is like, incidentally, your father's not your father. You were bought from Serbian immigrants. <laughs> and, and then everybody hates him for lying. And then he's kidnapped by the villain from the book who wants to blow him up. And this all sets in motion a series of events where he begins to wonder. I guess the two main conflicts are, one, you know, is he actually Tommy Taylor, the character from the book, somehow brought to life? Right. And then the other one is that there's, like, this secret organization that's up to something that sort of dictates... Well, I don't want to reveal too much about them, but there's, like, a secret evil organization that's that's tracking him. Yeah, a sort of literary mafia. Yeah. Now, there's a really interesting issue about Rudyard Kipling and his life and how that was affected by... That was the issue... Okay, so that's like issue seven or so. I think it's five. Maybe issue five. Okay. That was the issue where I was like, this is really Sandman-like in a way that I am really enjoying. Because there's this kind of idea of like shaping the world through shaping what can be written, what stories can be told. Well, yeah, and just like the way that like where Sandman, like, fables and reflections showed, like, Morpheus kind of touching history in various points by interacting with historical figures. In this Rudyard Kipling issue, we sort of see the same thing. Yeah. That, yeah. like, throughout history, this literary mafia has been affecting history by touching certain historical characters. Yeah, and I thought that was a really good issue. That was probably the one that most hooked me out of the first 12 in that... It came at a really appropriate dramatic moment. At the end of the first story arc, when we just starting to get the chance to breathe, you know, we then cut away from the main characters to find out what we're dealing with, what the stakes are. Yeah, Unwritten is pretty experimental, and it has a number of, like, issues where it's like, we're going to step away from the main action and do something different. And those issues are almost universally really good. Like, there's the issue with Rudyard Kipling, which I really enjoyed, and that was the one where I was like, where I sent you the message that was like, the unwritten is Sandman and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> There's the issue that focuses like almost entirely on the prison warden's kids. That was a weird one. And then you didn't get this far, but in the third trade, unwritten number 17 is a choose your own adventure book. Okay. And that worked really well as well. I think a very bizarre idea, but very well executed. Yeah. So my biggest issue with it at this point is at the end of 12 issues, there's still a lot that's unknown in the plot. And our sort of secondary protagonist, Lizzie Hexum, seems to know most of that and isn't talking for some reason. And like literally runs off and cries at one point because she was made to reveal some of the plot. Right. And it's just it's just spooning out the main concepts that the series is revolving around pretty slowly. Yeah, you have to wait a long time for answers. That's true, too. Like, I've gotten to the end of the third trade so mm -hmm. through issue 18. And, like, there's still a lot that I feel like I don't know. Okay. So it's definitely kind of a mystery structure, and it will take a while to 
reveal all of its cards. Right. What do you think of this art by Peter Gross? Generally, I liked the art. There are some really interesting constructions, some interesting character designs in here. The villain Pullman, who has like this hand that converts things back into writing. That was a really cool design. I liked that character a lot. Right. My one issue, I think, Tom himself has... It seems like he's deliberately drawn like more blandly than other people. Okay. He's got a very simple design, and he seems to show less detail than other characters a lot of the time. Okay. Have you gotten into the Highest House? No, I haven't had the chance yet. Which is not from Vertigo? Okay. It's the same creative team, so it's Peter Gross art yet again, and it's magazine size, so it just has a lot more room for like art and detail on every page, and I think it's great looking, but we can't talk about it on the podcast because it's not a Vertigo comic. Yeah, too bad. I, I would have to look this up to be sure, but I wonder if Mike Carey and Peter Gross did any Lucifer together at any point. I haven't read much Lucifer, but the forward to this book does refer to them as the lucifer team okay so one of the however many runs of lucifer that there have been by this point was the two of them together yeah yeah all the more reason to check that book out after i finish sandman and it's recent news that the lucifer tv series has met its demise uh, unless a miracle has happened you know in between recording this and publishing it yeah i can't say I'm real disappointed there. It looked like they just made a standard police procedure a lot of it to me. Yeah, it never really captured my attention either, although I'm intrigued to know that the last episode, by some coincidence, introduced the character of God, voiced by Neil Gaiman. Oh, that's kind of funny. Yeah. So, do you think you're going to be reading more of The Unwritten? Yeah, I think I'm definitely hooked by a lot of the mysteries going on in that series, and... Well, the last story arc that's in this book introduces a really interesting idea where they can kind of go into a fiction and set things right. That looks like it could be really fun in play. Yeah. I guess one of the future story arcs that I haven't gotten to yet revolves around Moby Dick, which should be really fun. Yeah, there was a really good Moby Dick comic that came out in the past year or so. But yeah, I really like Moby Dick, so it should, should be fun to see how tom taylor tackles that sounds cool well i think we have a couple of standalones coming up so join us for our next hellblazer episode as john constantine learns a couple of new tricks but first join us next week for preacher the hair star special one man's war we'll see you there vertigize is written and hosted by me and sean our music is by kelly joyce fielder Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertiguys. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. We have a Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com, and a Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you're listening to the show on the Apple Podcasts app or any other podcasts app. We'd really appreciate it if you would spread the word by giving us a positive rating and review. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. And the next one that's coming out is Black Ops 4, which is already being maligned because its logo is 
Black Ops 4 and the four is like four lines in a row and that's not how Roman numerals work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but who says they're using Roman numerals? Maybe they're using the numbering system of their own devisement. Maybe they're using tally marks and it just happens coincidentally to look like Roman numerals. Like zombie claws is like slash down. The, okay. For the first three games. But now we know that they were never using Roman numerals. They're just using tally marks. If they release one that's four lines and the fifth one is across, then we'll know. Then we'll know. <laughs> um, 